You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, that was fun. It's good to know that we were the last date before the prom. <laughs> That's the only way I'm married, so I'm glad that worked out. Um, but really, it's great to see you all. I, 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 don't, I just have some notes, and we'll... I'm going to share some things, and then I want to create some space as well for you all to ask whatever questions it is you might have. Um, you'll go through a series, and I forget the scope and sequence, to be honest with you, but you're going to go through a series of lessons, you know, one on baptism and the, the Lord's Supper. and I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of issues that you'll cover in this course, which I think are fascinating. Um, it, it says something about the character of our parish, that the, the first one that we do here is, is on the gospel. I mean, it, you, you can't be around the Advent very long without hearing gospel language used again and again. And, and today is a day for us to try to sort through a little bit what, what that word actually means, because it's a word that's bandied about a lot, um, and it probably needs a little bit of precision. So this is going to be a little academic-y. Uh, we're going to look at the Bible together, but then I want to sort of open it up for for questions as well, and 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 the surrounding crowd here. If y'all, if you all want to jump in and clarify something at any point, please, please do. But before we do that, let's say a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these dear folks and the work that you're doing in their lives to draw them, Lord, to yourself and to your church. And I pray that today, um, by your mercies, that you would help me as a teacher to be clear for them and lord to be faithful to what your word says and and lord that you would um, bless this time together in jesus name amen now the bad news is i don't have a watch on me the, the good news is we'll hear the bells so when the bells come we'll we'll stop um can i am i allowed to ride on this yeah. oh that was exciting um so let, let's I'll, I'll, the, the gospel word here and Luke, I know that you... Luke was in school with me at Beeson at one point in time. But you never took a class from me, did you? It, I, How did you... Yeah, that was, it was oh, I'm sure. Yeah, you it filled with regret. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell it's written all over you. I'm planning to re-enroll it. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, all right, so, so gospel um, is a technical term in the Bible. Um, the, the, the Greek term, just to kind of get a little academic with you, is euangelion, which on its very basic level means good news, okay? Um, so, and the good news, the language of the good news is all wrapped up with the importance of proclamation. In other words, the good news is something that has to be heralded. It needs to be told. Um, that, and we're going to go to Romans 10 again this morning before our time is over, but the passage that we had read in church this morning or at the 11 o'clock service, it follows right after that saying, how shall people believe, and we're going to talk about belief this morning, how shall people believe if they haven't heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? So there's a sense in which our church, rooted as it is in this particular moment in time called the Reformation that occurred in the 16th century, that our our, our church and the Anglican Episcopal tradition is a kind of interesting wedding together of 
of Catholicity in the sense of a concern for a liturgy that's rooted in the tradition of the church and um, a Protestant understanding of, of the gospel revealed in Jesus by faith alone in Christ alone. And, and you see that language embedded within the words that we say regularly in our, in our liturgy together. So our, our liturgy, the words of our worship, are all wrapped up with our confession about what we believe um, the gospel or the good news that we're proclaiming actually is. So the language of proclamation, good news, um, heralding, that's all wrapped up in this particular term here. Another term we might link with, with, with gospel is promise. It's the promise of God to redeem. It's the promise of God to save men and women from their sins. Um, so uh, Frank Limehouse, who, who was, and I, I've been here for 10 years, by the way. I came in, in uh, October, I believe, of 2012. Frank Limehouse was our dean at that point in time. I've got a dear place in my, my heart for that brother. Um, and and Frank used to say regular things about preaching needs to be um, good news, not good advice. He had all of these little slogans that he would toss around. That was one of them. Good news and not good advice. And, and a lot of proclamation, and again, not just trying to sort of downplay those who are out there, but a lot of proclamation tends to be toward the sort of good advice for you to kind of better yourself so that the church can become a kind of um, uh, morality club or, or, or a good works club on par with other so social organizations as well. And not that those kinds of issues aren't important, but of first importance is the proclamation, not of good advice, but good news. Namely, that Jesus, that God in Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, has accomplished something for you in his life and death that you could not accomplish for yourself. So there's a liberation from the tyranny of your own, think about this, your own religiosity, your own tendency in our religious selves, which is a part of our fallen sinful nature, to try to build ourselves up to God. Think Tower of Babel. That's within our instinct, within our religiosity. And there's a real big truth, it's a kind of interesting turn of phrase, that God saves us from our sins and our self-righteousness. He's saving us from both of those. Um, and so the good news is wrapped up with the proclamation of what God has done in Jesus by the Spirit for me and for you in his life, death, and resurrection that we could not do on our own. So I want to clarify that quickly before we look in. But now, can we look at some Bible together? And I'm an Old Testament guy. It's how I pay the bills. Um, I teach students. Hebrew at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, so I, I really like the Old Testament. I joke with my students that I think the New Testament's a great appendix. Um, I, don't, I don't mean that, by the way. But, uh, but can you go to Isaiah chapter 52? Verse 7. And I, I, wanna, I want you to see a verse that's really... Oh, oh give me a, a page number here, brother. 520 in your pew Bible. Um, so, why don't, why don't, who, who's willing to read Isaiah 52 7 this morning? Someone willing to jump into the fray here? I like how your wife volunteered you for that. <laughs> I saw that. I like it. I, I live in such a world. I understand. <laughs> I should have saw the scene that coming. <laughs> um, all right, Isaiah 52, 7. 
And how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Okay, so can we, let's, let's sit with this verse for a second. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. Now, you'll be interested to know that, that when the Greek translators of the Old Testament translated that word there in Hebrew into Greek, the word was euangelion or gospel. Right? So it's, I think it's very important, by the way, and I, this is a, a very personal matter to me, that we understand that the gospel that we are claiming is, is not simply a New Testament doctrine, but a whole Bible doctrine. Both Old and New Testament, in their distinction, but in their relation, pressure us to think about the gospel in a particular way. So here you have the announcement in Isaiah 52, 7 about the coming kingdom of God. So what's the good news? And I think this is important because we want to let the Bible pressure our thoughts on these matters. What's the good news here in Isaiah 52, 7? The good news is the truth that God is the king, that he reigns, that his kingdom is coming. Um, this, is, this is the deep part of the logic of the Old Testament, that, that the salvation of God's people depends on the presence of God in their midst. It's why the tabernacle was in the middle when the people were traveling. It's why they had the Shekinah glory of God and the, and the fire uh, cloud at night and the pillar of cl the cloud in the day. God's presence was in their midst. For God to be near them was to be in the presence of life. For God to remove his presence is to move toward death. So the presence of God and his nearness to us is all wrapped up with his kingdom reign. Our God reigns, the kingdom of God is here. It's not a mistake that Jesus arrives on the scene in Matthew and especially the beginning of Mark and he begins to preach really, really simple sermons. I mean, the, the early sermons of Jesus were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, another way of saying that might be, you remember, you've heard of Isaiah 52, 7, that's happening now. The good news is being announced to you now. God's reign is breaking onto you now. So the, God, the announcement of the gospel is an announcement, the good news, about God triumphing in his kingdom and his saving work for all of creation. That's at the heart of the good news. But this is what I love about Isaiah and why this is so rich. We, a lot, when I was a youth pastor for several years while I was in seminary, which I think is hard for my students to believe. Um, I was the least cool youth pastor in the history of, of uh, youth pastordom. Um, but I can remember we used to sing songs, uh, choruses about our God reigning and Isaiah 52, 7. So we know about the, the jubilation of a claim like Isaiah 52, 7. It comes with trumpets and timpanies. It's that kind of verse. I want you to count with me, and I don't normally do this, but count verses with me to get to Isaiah 52, verse 13. So uh, we have seven, then we go to eight, that's one, nine, two, ten, eleven, twelve. So we're what? Uh, five verses, one, two, three, four, five. And then we get to Isaiah 52, verse 13. And here's the stunner. Isaiah is letting you know the mechanism, and this is crucial, by which the kingdom reign of God breaks into his people. Here's the mechanism. Because we think kingdom of God we're, I mean, we're thinking chariots, horses coming over the mountains. We're thinking about, you know, uh, 
uh, imperial images in our minds about what the kingdom of God breaking in on us is going to look like. Well, Isaiah's got a different picture for us. Here's the mechanism by which the kingdom of God and the good news will break onto his people. Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be exalted and lifted up. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of humankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Now, I get giddy about that language. I won't chase it, but that's, that's intentional temple sacrificial language, right? He's sprinkling many nations. The kings of the earth will shut their mouths because of who? It's this servant figure. Um, for that which has not been told them, they are now seeing. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Okay, so we're set on edge now. We've got the announcement of God's kingdom reign. We're being told to herald it and to proclaim it. And now we're being told by Isaiah the prophet the mechanism by which God will release his kingdom reign in the world. And he's going to do it through this figure called the servant. Here he is. And who is this servant? Well, now we're going to get to chapter 53. And we're in Lent. You know, not too long from now, we're going to be in a Good Friday service together, which I hope you all come to that service. It's one of the more powerful things that happens around here. We'll sing things like, were you there when they crucified my Lord together? And the baritone of our choir will sing that out. I mean, it's a, it's a very moving service. And Isaiah 53 will be read on that day. Okay, so this is the text that's read on Good Friday. So are you beginning to see a link here? We've, been, we've seen the timpani and the trumpets of Isaiah 52.7, the announcement of God's kingdom reign. And now Isaiah is telling you the mechanism by which that reign and the people who are members of that kingdom, how all of that is brought about, how all of that is actualized. And here we go, 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Now that's worth looking at, because again, that has to do with proclamation. This is a message that's to be shared. It's a message that's to be proclaimed. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's just a kind of technical phrase for the, for the saving strength of God. So who's believed our message and who has seen the saving strength of God revealed? Because he, well, who's the he here? It's that servant figure. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a dry, root out of dry ground. He didn't have any form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Already, are you feeling the tension between 52.7 and this? I mean, 52.7 is a beautiful painting. 53, as we moved into this, there's an ugliness, an earthiness that comes about in this kingdom reign of God. No form, no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And now we're getting into the heart of the gospel here. Surely he, this servant figure, this king, who sprinkles all the nations, the one who is the arm of God's salvation now revealed to us. He's the one that's borne all of our griefs. He's carried all of our sorrows. We have seen him stricken and smitten by God. He was afflicted. And boy, here's language that's almost stunning to think this was written, you know, a long time before Jesus came about. He was pierced for our transgressions, 
crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Every one of us are like sheep that have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we're going to work through the rest of this text together, but let me, let me stop here and just reflect a little bit with you. So you're seeing this figure that's emerging within Israel who's an exalted king. In fact, well, this is, I'm getting a little nerdy with you this morning, but you can't go anywhere. Um, the, the language that's used in 52.13 is scandalous language. It says, Behold my servant, he will be raised and highly exalted. That, that's language, if you've read through Isaiah the prophet, that should cause you to kind of go, I think I've heard that before. Where, did I, where have I heard that before? How about Isaiah 6.1? In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw Jehovah, the Lord, high and exalted on his throne. It's the same two terms that are used throughout all of Isaiah, only to describe the Lord himself, the God of Israel, is now being used to describe this servant figure. It's, it's stunning. And by the way, just as commentaries on this dismiss, uh, you know, they just kind of push it to the side. And I'm like, well, you know, we're Christians. You know, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. He is God. Whatever you can say about God's godness, you can say that about Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of our Christian Trinitarian confession of faith. So here you have a human figure who's also God, the God of Israel, that's becoming one who is stricken and afflicted. And the affliction that this one carries is not of his own making. That's the crucial bit. He's innocent. He's guiltless. He carries none of that burden on his own because of his own doing. He carries the sins of you and me on his own shoulders. That's the classic language here is he is our representative and he is our substitute. He's standing in our place. The uh, You can use this at your next cocktail party. The $100 theological term for this is the vicarious substitution of Jesus Christ. Um, you stand guilty before the Lord because of your sin. And this is, by the way, not an easy thing, especially in our highly therapeutic moment that we live in, kind of a post-Freudian world. We're all in it. Whether you know it or not, we are in that. Very hard to have an honest conversation about who we really are, coming to terms with our identity as sinners in need of the, of the saving work of someone other than ourselves. That's a, that's a very humbling thing to come to terms with that. But what we see with this figure here in Isaiah 53 is someone that's bearing our sins on himself. They're not ours. Um, he's hanging between heaven and hell, not because of what he did, but he's bearing our sins um, for us. So this is really crucial in coming to terms with what the gospel is all about. It's wrapped up in the kingdom announcement of God. But the mechanism of that kingdom coming on earth has to do with this despised figure who bears the sins of humanity so that they can be made right with the living God. And that's where we go with the rest of the, the, the chapter. 
Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. This is also wild, right? This is all in Isaiah. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. I mean, this is so wild. Um, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. And now I want these, these, these are heavy verses. Brace yourself. And, and potentially offensive. But, but I want you to feel the weight of them. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, can I give you a different translation of this to make it a little bit heavier? It was God's delight to crush him. Now, you have to think of this here because. In Trinitarian terms, we know that the being of God is one through tri-personal agency, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is God's own internal counsel, right? This is God's own self-determination to be a God for us who suffers for us and dies for us for the sake of our salvation. And it was the will of the Lord, it was His delight to crush Him. And what you're sensing here is in all the horror of Good Friday and the horror of the cross, um, and this is maybe too pedestrian, but, but it's the only thing that's coming to me right now, um, the massive smile of God's grace for sinners. This is the demonstration of how much God loves His wayward and rebellious people. He loves them so much. He pursues them with such passion that he recognizes, and this is, by the way, a big heart of Isaiah's message, they cannot heal themselves. They do not have the resources to heal. Israel was called to be something for themselves and the whole world, and Israel could not be it. You've read Judges and Samuel and Kings. It's a disaster from beginning to end. They could not be that. So God becomes that for them in their place. And it was the delight of the Lord to crush him for the saving of his people. That's how much God loves his people. Now, I've got a great Jonathan Edwards sermon. He was a 18th century um, philosopher and Puritan preacher. I mean, these preachers would find like two words and preach five hours on it. It was kind of remarkable. Um, but I have the sermon of Edwards that he preached on Luke 22 where it says, And his sweat became like great drops of blood. And it's just this beautiful phrase where Edward says, that sweat drop of blood was came from a deluge of love from the Father that was able to envelop the whole world. I mean, that's the sense that you're getting here from Isaiah 53.10. The Lord's delight was to crush him for the saving of his people. So let's look at the rest of this here, because now we're going to get into gospel language. When his soul had made an offering for sin or guilt, he shall see his offspring. By the way, do you know who his offspring are? Those that believe in him. We are his offspring. He will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And now verse 11. I want you to look at this closely here. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Okay, so think about it. Out of the anguish of the soul of the servant in his innocent suffering and guilt uh, and place taking of your guilt and sin, he sees something and he's satisfied. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, um, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. So what is it that he's seeing in his suffering and that he's satisfied with? Next verse, no, next line. By his knowledge, now I'm just going to retranslate this for you if you don't mind. By knowing him, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, let me me say that verse one more time for you. By the knowledge of him shall the one who is righteousness make many to be righteous. Now you're getting Isaiah kind of holding our hands a little bit here and giving us the language that we need to identify what the gospel is at its very core. Namely this, knowing who the servant is and what the servant Jesus Christ has done for you in living his, your life and dying your death in the knowledge of that. And by the way, from, from my understanding, knowledge in the Old Testament is, is another way of describing faith. What is knowledge? Not just intellectual assent. It's intellectual assent and a complete dependence of the heart that what is said is true and it's true for me. I put everything on the line for this. That's what I think we heard today in our reading in Romans 10 as well. Believing with our hearts. Recognizing that all that animates us and makes us human, that we place all of that in dependence on the truth that Jesus lived for me, that he died for me, and my sins are forgiven completely, not because of something that I have done, but simply by the knowledge of him. It's a remarkable thing. Now, in our tradition, we use this language, you're saved by grace alone and through faith alone and you you're a decent person i mean we all this i mean we just you can't talk about our theology without saying the word alone it's like you just just got to say alone a lot (laughs) so so what does it mean by faith alone it's a recognition that faith and what is faith oh those are the bells (laughs) what is faith faith is the only human activity that is commiserate with the object of what our faith is. Because what's faith at its very core? Faith is receptivity. It's receiving. It's believing. It's knowing. It's recognizing that that's true. And here you have Isaiah the prophet telling you it's by the knowledge of him, the one who lived and died in your place, that you know that your sins are forgiven and you are um, set free before him. I'm going to give you this story before you go. I'll I'll make it. Don't worry, Fontaine. You're going to start sweating. When my wife and I, when my wife and I first moved to Birmingham t- years ago, we had some evangelists show up on our front door. Have you ever had that happen before? I used to do that when I was in high school. And uh, so these two men came in, and they were from a big, 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 big Presbyterian church in town. <laughs> it was a little joke. Um, many of you will know what that is. Um, and they, they walked in, and I and we had this great conversation. And but they were going to go through their spiel. Um, and I told them, like, I'm, I'm here to teach seminary and teach the Bible. I love Jesus with all my heart. And, and they're like, well, that's great, but we got some questions we still need you to answer. <laughs> all right. And so they, they asked me, they, they, and here's the question, question that D. James Kennedy came up with a long time ago. If you were to stand today before the living God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? And I'll be honest with you, I was a little frustrated at that point because I thought, we can be human, and I've been honest with you, but they were like, right, you're going to answer that question. 
and um, and I, I can't say that my attitude was great, <laughs> but my answer wasn't bad. I said, Jesus, that's all I can say. It's, it's, there's, there, I don't get to the gates of heaven on the far side of the portals of my own death and show anything off for my biography. Nothing. Well, that's right. That day, they do not get you there. It's simply Jesus Christ and what He has done for me, and uh, and living my life and dying my death. So, Lord Jesus, bless these friends as they go, and um, let the truth of the gospel that you've announced your kingdom reign in Jesus Christ, the one who lived and died for us, let it seize our hearts, and Lord, give us the gift of faith, so that we can believe that it's true and that it's true for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. <laughs> You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.